take a network break. I brought extra virtual donuts to make up for my absence. We've got stories today on Aruba Network, Cisco, VMware, and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. To find out what's next in SASE, sign up to watch the Palo Alto Network's SASE Converge 2021. It's an on-demand webinar where you'll hear from leading voices in networking and security and get details on the impact of SASE or Secure Access Service Edge technology and more. Sign up at sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com and stay tuned for a Tech Bytes conversation with Pluribus Networks. Pluribus makes SDN software and we talk with Pluribus and their partner IT Renew about how the two companies are providing infrastructure and software for building private clouds on-prem. Last but not least, uh, if you like tech news and you want more of it and also perspectives on life and IT, check out our Human Infrastructure newsletter. It's free. It comes out every week. It's produced by the Packet Pushers. You can sign up for it at packetpushers.net slash newsletter and also read every back issue there. And if you're a Human Infrastructure subscriber and you have an essay idea, we'll pay you to write it for us. Just email me, drew at packetpushers.net if you want details. All right, let's dive into some news. Last week, Aruba Networks announced a brand new top-of-rack switch, the CX-10000, that includes built-in silicon for running security and network services, such as a stateful firewall, directly on the switch. The silicon comes from the startup Pensando, which competes with the like of NVIDIA and Mellanox in the DPU, or data processing unit, slash smart NIC space. Uh, the switch has 48 ports of 10 or 25 gigabits per second and six uplink ports of 40 or 100 gig, and each of the Pensando DPUs offers 400 gig of throughput for a combined 800 gig on on the box. You know, when I when I first heard this, I really felt like I was 20 years younger, Drew. That was my initial reaction. <laughs> it's also a time machine this is, is what you're saying? A time machine? Yeah. This really, like the initial reaction was, I remember when we had these line cards that went into Catalyst switches and they were going to be, the network was going to be the application mm -hmm. and, you know, load balances and firewalls and monitoring modules and XML gateways and, you know, all this stuff was going to be, and the network was going to be intelligent and smart and wise. And uh, 20 years later, what do we do? We don't, you know, that it never went anywhere. Right. None of that stuff sold very well. It was extremely problematic to operate. Now, 20 years later, we're going to have another go at it, as is technologies want. I think there's an RFC for that. Every <laughs> every technology <laughs> will be reinvented. Uh, I'm pretty sure the RFC 1925, because every technology will be reinvented, regardless of whether it worked or not the first time. So that's fine. I, I think this is really interesting in the sense that there is a different angle here and there is a possibility, however remote, that the DPU inside of a switch is a thing. The idea is, is that when we were doing these smart line cards or trying to put applications in the network firewalls, load balances, instead of having them as external devices, the problem was is that it was just such a unique niche use case, whereas the DPU that they're trying to say here is or what Pansando is trying to say is, that their proprietary DPU is a much bigger market because you can put it in the server or you could put it in the switch. Therefore, the applications that we're going to convince third parties to write for this platform could run on the server, but you could also choose to run them in a switch at top of rack if that's what you wanted. So there's an angle, but I'm not entirely convinced. What, what's your thoughts? Yeah, um, I feel like I, the, the concept seems sound to me especially the way Aruba's positioning in that as, as a way to bring more security services and additional networking capabilities to your east-west traffic, because otherwise, if you wanted to do some kind of inspection, you'd either have to shunt the traffic out to some kind of cluster of appliances or software to do the inspection and then shunt it back in. And that's, you know, some complexity and performance mm -hmm. issues. Or you can put a bunch of software agents on servers in the rack and so do the inspection closer to the actual workload on the server. 
but that's potentially expensive if you're going to license all those agents, um, potentially more management complexity. So yeah. Aruba is kind of splitting the difference by saying, we'll put it in the switch um, so you get it a little bit closer to the workload without going through the other complexities. See, to me, if, I, if I'm going to put a DPU inside the server, that makes more sense to me because then I can run the firewall on the server. Yes. So if I've got a, and this is targeted at cloud scale operations. This is not an enterprise product, by the way. This is uh, not something that most enterprises are going to buy is this DPU and a switch. And if I was running a cloud scale operation and I had to make a decision between, do I put an acceleration card into a switch and then I can choose to run some future software that I might write myself or somebody else might write, or do I just put it in the DPU in the server and then I can always just deploy software into the server and run it locally as needed, as and when? And over the last 20 years, what we've learned is that the edge is better than the than the core mm -hmm. and doing things in the server makes more sense. Like the lesson we learned from Nasira slash VMware NSX is doing firewalling in a software switch makes far more sense than having, you know, an external. There is a reason why you might want to have a hardware firewall in the line, but that's not a market just to have one hardware file running on a DPU enabled switch, if that makes sense. Well, I think, uh, That's a, yeah, I take your point. And I think Aruba would mm. spin that out on its head and say, yes, you can do it the NSXT way, the VMware way, but mm. it's really expensive and potentially really complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're going after uh, more, I think, cost sensitive buyers in the enterprise. Uh, this switch is $45,000, including the DPUs and the, you get some services on top yeah. of it, including firewall, DDoS protection, uh, ER span, and telemetry. Well, I was watching the Pensando and Zex yesterday at the owner conference, and they were saying this is not targeted to the enterprise. This is targeted at cloud companies. Now, this is not obviously uh, the, the big cloud companies, the off-prem clouds. It's the small subscale, the tier twos and tier threes, uh, and maybe even SaaS companies. If I had to um, make a pitch here, if I had to convince myself my angle would be that HP is pretty well known that it will go, if a customer comes to it and says, I want a specific thing, mm -hmm. and that customer is willing to buy enough of them, a production runs worth of something for a very large sum, HP will manufacture it. And I wonder if that's what's happening here in the sense that there's, um, if you remember back, I don't know if you remember back sort of in the mid 2000s when Wi-Fi was just taking off, um, and at that time, uh, HP had just acquired a company called Colubris, I think is the name. I could be wrong. Don't get me wrong, but it was a long while ago. And uh, this company had manufactured for uh, one of the really, really big international chains a Wi-Fi uh, base station that actually ran in a power socket. Mm. And they sold thousands and thousands of them to this hotel, and that's how they run their Wi-Fi. They basically put a Wi-Fi unit in every hotel room, which was a great idea. But... They also put it on the price list, but nobody else really went for it. <laughs> it's one of those niche use cases. And you look at it on the price list and you think, well, that's a really good idea until you sort of think about it and you go like, see, now I've got a thousand rooms in a hotel and I've got a thousand Wi-Fi base stations I have to manage. Is that really what you want? Or is it just easier to put a wireless, you know, do a traditional wireless where you put one in the corridor and you put them, you know, run some cabling and all that sort of stuff? Does that make more sense? I'm not sure I, un I understand that game. No. Well, I think Aruba would say, yes, that's exactly what we're saying. Instead of having to put software agents on all your servers in all your racks, uh, which could be, and also, to, you know, if you're going to put in a, a DPU or a, a smart NIC in there, that's going to be expensive and time consuming to take them out, put in the new boxes, et cetera, put it in the switch. Uh, and, you know, it's instead of having to do it in yeah. X number of servers, you do it in a handful of switches and you still get extra security controls that you can use for that East-West traffic.
Yeah, no, I understand that, but it makes more sense. If you're going to control east-west, you still haven't controlled east-west inside the server itself. That's where this uh, solution falls down, yes, uh, for that uh, inter-VM on the same host. This solution yeah. doesn't so you, solve that problem. You're looking at running uh, anywhere from 20 to 400 VMs in a single server, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So having a firewall <laughs> upstream doesn't really help you with the inter-VM traffic. Yes. Right? You really need a firewall functionality or that right at the edge there where the VM. And to be fair, you actually need it outside of the whole virtualization infrastructure so that the even if the hypervisor gets compromised, you're still maintaining the segmentation. But if you're a second-rate cloud provider and you're not thinking through all the issues clearly, you might be looking at this and thinking that could fit, you know, that would give me some. And But at the end of the day... This feels like a like a suck, what I call a sucker pack. Now that's not a derogatory, but it is like, well, I want the DPUs and I want to be able to deploy my own code, but I can't afford to pay Pinsando's price for a nick in every server because I'm pretty sure Pinsando is a premium price because John Chambers is involved uh -huh. with the company. Uh -huh. So I imagine it's not reasonable and fair. You know, they're not giving it away or trying to seed the market here. They're trying to make a profit from day one. Um, and so if you're looking at putting one of these in. Um, does you might go? I think. Well, I I'll go halfway, and I think you might just as well have not bothered if that is the way you want to go. But let me also mention that. Keep in mind here that Pensando is competing against companies like Nvidia and Mellanox in the NIC space. Yep. Does it make sense? And Intel, for that matter, right? Nvidia, Mellanox, Intel's got a DPU that it's coming out with. There's a whole bunch of other companies who've got smart NICs, FPGA driven, ASIC driven, that are, are really working hard to come up you know, and, and, and step up to this game. Pentamdos and uh, a couple of others have got some, the orchestration software or the SDN controllers. They're a little ahead of the game there. That's what's missing is the software on the NICs at the moment. But can this get out far enough ahead that they set the market? Or does, do, you know, NVIDIA, Intel kill the market for these small niche players? And I know at the moment that I would bet on a brand any day. Yeah, well, we should also note that HPE, which is Aruba's parent company, is a strategic investor in Pensando, so that probably also has a lot to do with this deal. Well, not a parent company, just a strategic investor. And right, parent Pensando company of Aruba Networks, HP. not Pensando. They're HPE That's is a right. strategic yeah. and investor. And Pensando, Pensando is, yeah, HPE will be an investor in some form in in Pensando, or it appears to be so. We've got no, I haven't got a lot of information, but this just doesn't like this is a rehash of a twenty-year-old idea that didn't work. You know, is it is it worth trying this again? I guess we'll see. Yeah, there's so much more complexity here. Uh, you've got to have the switch, then you've got to have it at the top of rack, and then you've got to have the DPUs. Then you've got to load the NOS and have all of the BGP and everything running. And then on top of that, you've got to have the code that drives the DPU here. So you have to rewrite your operating system, and then you have to then find apps to run on it. So where's the firewall company? So you think F5 is going to come here? Do you think checkpoints? going to put their software into these DPUs? I don't know. That was my initial know. thought for this strategy, but it turns out, no. Right now, it's all Pensando applications or services. So if you want to use this, then you're using mm. a, a firewall that Pensando wrote. You're using DDoS protection that Pensando wrote, et cetera. Uh, and, and as far as I know, there are no plans at this point to run like VNFs or third-party applications on these DPUs in the switch. Maybe that'll change over time. Okay. Right. But right now, if you are into this, then it's Pensando who's your uh, application provider. And that's definitely an idea. There was a company called Embrain Networks 20 years ago who tried this idea. Right. Sorry, not 20 years ago, in 2008, 2009. Right. And they originally built something almost identical to this, just without the hardware part. Mm -hmm. And 
their problem was is that they couldn't write all of the code for a firewall and a load balancer and just, and all that sort of stuff, right? Right. Now, and that product didn't go anywhere. Cisco eventually bought Embrain, and I think it just disappeared into the ether. I think Cisco is really just hiring the people. Some of those people are still there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if it didn't work 10 years ago, why would it work 15 years later? Sorry, not 10 years ago, but 15 years later. You know, is I'm not sure. I think one of the lessons that we learned from overlay networking, VXLAN in the data center, is that we actually don't want to do things in the network. In the hardware, we want that to be as simple as possible. And I think this whole thrust here is counter going counter to the narrative that we have in the, in the whole industry right now, which is the hardware should be dumb and the smart should be at the edge. Mm-hmm. And making that stick seems to me to be a really tough sell, although I'm sure there'll be a few people out there who'll probably go for it. But that doesn't necessarily make a market. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on, on it is going counterintuitive and maybe they would say, well, we're being thought leaders and uh, innovative here. But I, my, my final takeaway is that if you're an organization, you're looking for more of a micro segmentation approach in your data center, but something like ACI or NSXT is too expensive and complex, you now have an option to explore. Whether it's a great option, you're going to have to find that out for yourself, but it's there. And I mean, you said it was $45,000 for 48 ports of 10 gig or 20, for a 48 port 25 gig switch. Yep. And six points of 100 gig. That's like eight times the price of a white box. <laughs> right. Like just for the switch. That's no software licensing, no Pensando licensing, no like no controller licensing, no feature, you know, none of the other stuff on top. That's that's a big ask. Although, yes, but it does have that extra silicon in there. So I, I think there's other yeah. ways to look well, at it. Well, there yeah. is that. Yeah. I mean, the silicon that you may never use. And that's one of the lessons I learned from Cisco's POE back in the mid 2000s. We all went out and bought upgraded switches because we were all going to do IP telephony. And then when IP telephony finally arrived 10 years later, the power format was completely different and all those switches were a waste of time. You've been burned one too many times. Well, it's just only buy what you need. Only buy what you absolutely need and get ready to replace it when you need to. Don't over-rotate on networking, which, you know, so much... So much of the existing practice is based on overinvestment in your physical infrastructure because you think, oh, I'm only going to get this once. Well, don't. Anyway. Yeah, so uh, an interesting and discussion-worthy release from Aruba. I wrote a blog about it. I'll have the link in the show notes as well as links to the data sheet and the announcement if you want more details, but we will move on. Uh, Dell has announced that a spinoff of VMware will be complete by November 1st of 2021, bringing to a close the long, strange saga of wheeling and dealing that started back in 2015 when Dell bought EMC, which owned the majority of VMware shares. So this is about the third time that this has been announced, I think. There was previous announcements in uh, like five years ago, then again three years ago. This time they're serious, apparently, because it's actually going to complete by November 1, which is just 10 days ago, ten days away. What's actually happening here is that Dell has owns about 80% of VMware shares, mm-hmm. and they will be now issued or distributed to existing Dell shareholders as at the strike date. And uh, all the shares that Dell currently owns in VMware will be distributed to currently to Dell shareholders. Um, it does end an era in the sense that Dell has been using VMware for a lot of fairly creative financial engineers, mm-hmm. pulling special dividends out of VMware to fund the Dell balance sheet. Obviously, if you own 80% of the company, you're entirely entitled to do so if that's what you choose, right? Mm-hmm. And th- it leads to questions around you know, is Dell going to be viable without VMware? Is it going to, you know, is it going to prop up the Dell share price? And then what does what does VMware look like without Dell? So 
I, well, for one thing, Dell stands to gain billions of dollars in the sale, which it actually needs to pay down the debts it incurred by buying EMC in the first place. So it feels like there's a little bit of circularity going on here. And frankly, I think it's probably good for VMware to be a free agent again. Um, it's been a hostage kind of to the financial engineering Michael Dell has been doing, you know, over the past six years or so. So I think VMware standing on its own is a little bit better as, as opposed to being sort of Michael Dell's, uh, you know, piggy bank or whatever. Um, I, I think the next question is whether... <laughs> someone else comes along and wants to snap up VMware. Yeah, the challenge there is that VMware has always positioned itself as like a, they call themselves a Switzerland, like they don't compete with their with their partners, except when they do. <laughs> like, you know, VMware's not a networking company. Well, it owns an SD-WAN company and it owns a 5G infrastructure company and it owns NSX, right? right. But it doesn't compete with what, like, you know, um, it, it's not a firewall company, but it has a firewall company and it has like a dozen uh, security business units, but it is a firewall company, right, right? right? So it'll be interesting to see what happens after it exits. And while the VMware hypervisor remains, you know, a universal type of technology that everybody wants to have, there's less and less value attached to it, I think. And VMware hasn't been successful in getting its vCloud type SD software-defined infrastructure to the level where people can actually use it. Like even if you look at the adoption rates for VMware Cloud on AWS, this we're 10 years into that of them trying to say, get to AWS, you know, go to AWS or Azure, we're going to have VMware, you can go there, you can run it. That's 10 years ago. And that has not been widely adopted. It's very slow. And, you know, is VMware free of Dell actually now going to be able to go to Cisco and say, how can we drive your customers onto VMware on AWS? I'm not entirely convinced that's 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 a logical line of thought. And that's why Dell's ditching VMware is because the time has come. This is the maximum value and VMware's got a more downside than upside going forward. I guess I, in some ways I almost feel like Dell has more downside going forward than VMware. VMware still has a very robust business selling uh, virtualization software to enterprises who are tied into that platform uh, on-prem and in some cases in the private cloud, like the, the fact that folks are willing to double spend on AWS and VMware in the public cloud seems bonkers to me, but but it's happening. So mm. I guess I feel like VMware's got the better upside. The question for VMware is where does it live in a an environment where supposedly all the move is toward the public cloud uh, and off of potentially the hypervisor and onto containers. And I know it's trying with its Tanzu platform, uh, but there are issues of complexity and is it going to appeal to developers and all that kind of thing. So it's definitely got a hard road ahead of it, but I would say yep. Dell's road is harder being a pure play infrastructure company these days. Yeah, but Dell's much more of a warehousing company than a technology company. It doesn't own or develop its own technology. What it really is is a reseller of other people's technology, yeah. and so it's actually quite vulnerable in that sense. In the, about it, in the sense that if the pipeline breaks down, it's vulnerable. But the flip side is, it doesn't actually have any investment in inventing CPUs or hard drives. Uh, it just has a bunch of factories in China that it outsources the assembly of computers to, and storage arrays, right? And the EMC business is doing fine, it's generating good profits, but it's not a growth right market. That's a long it's, it's a sustained. Tail. Yeah. It's a long tail business. People are still out there buying on it. Uh, it gave them some professional services and and some good relationships with customers to sell, you know, to increase Dell's engagement with high spending uh, buyers. Like enterprise buyers like to buy a brand. They love their Coca Cola, right? Mm -hmm. And they want to buy from a trusted brand and all that sort of stuff. 
you know, and uh, EMC gave Dell a lot of cachet in the enterprise and allowed them to move up into a higher margin, higher top line value business there that they'd been struggling to get through for years. Right. You're going to spend a lot more on storage than you are on servers. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. I, I'm not, you know, I could go either way. You could see VMware stumble outside of Dell because they don't also have, you know, financially in the market, VMware's price has been propped up by the fact that Dell owns 80% of the shares. So, you know, VMware's price uh, tracked the Dell price. Well, now, be interested to see what happens. I guess my prediction is that, uh, you know, finally being decoupled from Dell VMware, uh, you know, it's not going to necessarily go back to its heyday as being the king of the hypervisor, but I think it's going to do better uh, being a free agent rather than being, uh, you know, bound to Dell and all of Michael Dell's machinations. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be interesting to see because I also think that Dell, VMware is having a tough time post Pat Gelsinger, like with Gelsinger leaving, although Gelsinger was leaving for quite some time. It was always obvious to most people that he had d- done what he needed to do at VMware and was looking for something else. Um Question is, is does the new executive team because most of the top executives also left? Yeah, uh, not because just because they were all you know it was time, not 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 because there was a sinking ship or anything like that. Right, but there is a whole lot of new executives in charge, and the question is, do they, you know, they have to revitalize the company? The previous generation is gone, and all of VMware's traditional businesses are. You know, they're not growth, they're stable, right, but right. where do they find growth, you know? And yeah. the big push at VMworld around cross-cloud, hybrid, multi, whatever cloud it is this week, um, <laughs> sort of suggests that they actually don't know. They just want to bet on all the possible outcomes, like, as we've seen before. There's definitely that, yeah, yeah. Mm. My initial take on the new VMware leadership is stable but unexciting, and, you know, there's something to be said for that. I certainly appreciated this uh, VMware CEO checking his email on the anal- on the uh, market analyst call the other day. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I felt really you felt like, important you know, and and recognized. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, yes. And <laughs> when he stopped talking, he'd go and do his email, and then when somebody threw it back to him, he'd stop doing his email and come back on. I thought that was a bit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you know where you stand. You know, we're only like three years into working remotely, and you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Not a good sign, perhaps. <laughs> All right, we'll leave that there and move on. Uh, Israeli company Cato Networks has raised $200 million in a Series F funding round, bringing total investment in the SASE vendor to $532 million. Lightspeed Venture Partners led the round. Cato is in the secure access surface edge market. It's got a host of pops around the world and its own global backbone network. The company says it's going to use this money to fuel sales and business growth. <laughs> Yeah, so as usual, the headline number is a mythical figure and generally crafted to create headlines. So that's why we put it out there, because it is a headline. Two and a half billion for a SASE company seems incredibly optimistic to me. Yeah, that's what the company is uh, saying, and it's now worth, because of this investment, $2.5 billion on a $200 million investment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody said, we'll give you $200 million if you take this much of the company. And, you know, there's a whole lot of ways to lie with numbers, so let's just say okay, but let's take it at face value: two and a half billion for a SaaS company, still running standalone without any major branding behind it. Like, you know, it doesn't have a HP, you know, sugar daddy like Pensando does, right, for example. Right. Um, is kind of impressive. However, it is pittance compared to its competitors. Look at, for example, Palo Alto or Fortinet with their SD WAN, or even Cisco with its sort of. You know, Cisco's doing okay with its SD-WAN strategy, but it hasn't exactly beat the market. If it did, companies like Cato wouldn't exist, right? Um, uh, what they are doing here is I think they've sort of got to some sort of a point where they're at a tipping point. 
So my guess is they've gone back to investors and said, we want to have enough money to be able to buy extra headcount and to fund growth in our infrastructure. Because part of Cato is that they actually have 65 points of presence around the world today and you route traffic into that. And while most of that will be rented and it'll be VMs in someone else's cloud, it does actually require cash and maintenance to run that. Yep. Whereas uh, a lot of the cheaper SD-WAN companies just do some stuff in the in the hardware at the edge. And that's often enough for company, for customers. Cato wants to go a bit further and say, we're a sassy. Um, and so when I dug into some of the things, and this is an F-series round, so this is the sixth round of funding that Cato's had, right. which is pretty deep. He said that uh, the CEO said, uh, Shlomo Kramer said, we'll in 2021 with 400 employees globally and we'll grow to about 600 by the end of 2022 with significant hiring in our engineering organization and our global sales. So that would validate that hypothesis. That is, they need to grow their engineering to maintain the infrastructure and to scale it out. And they also need to get a sales engine going so they can compete against the incumbent brands in some way yep. and find new customers. And that's pretty, that's a big, that's a tall order to be fair. I think so. Um, you know, you mentioned Palo Alto. I think they're probably Cato's biggest competitor, certainly in terms of brand awareness mm. and brand name. There's also Fortran out there. I doubt they're they're all that worried about Cisco because Cisco's essentially got a dog's breakfast of uh, sassy solution mm -hmm. at the moment. So uh, I kind of wonder with uh, them touting this 2.5 billion company valuation, if they're saying, hey, uh, if you're interested in buying us, this is kind of our starting asking price. <laughs> well, I don't know. The Shlomo Kramer, who's the CEO, and you know, I don't have a high impression of CEOs because generally their job is to make about three decisions a year and then look at spreadsheets for the rest of it. But he did co-found Checkpoint years ago uh, in Perva, which was one of the early WAF products. And he's also been involved in founding, uh, in investing in Palo Alto Networks and a range of other companies. So this guy really knows how to play the game. He does. In the sense of how to get investors and to build companies and stuff like that. Um, I do... I think there's a couple of things that you can take away. SD-WAN and SASE is still a nascent market. That is the almost the percentage of companies who've actually bought SD-WAN so far is very small. The actual deployment of it for all the hype and the discussion and so forth that are here on the on bagger pushes as well, there's actually not that many companies running it. There's still plenty of, of customers for vendors to go out and get. And I think that's the pitch here from Cato and others. We also saw... Um, a range of press releases this week from other SD-WAN slash SASE companies pitching that they've got extra money as well. Um, so I think it's, you know, there's SD-WAN, it's not over yet. We've got years more, years and years more of this to come. That's right. Yeah. And I think that's probably what Cato is banking on. All right. Uh, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. They recently launched the industry's first conference dedicated to SASE. There's that word again. SASE Converge 2021. You can sign up to see an on-demand version of the event. You'll hear from industry veterans, including Palo Alto Networks founder and CTO Nir Zook, Gartner's VP and distinguished analyst, and one of the founding fathers of SASE, Neil McDonald, as well as a godfather of SDN himself, Martin Casado. Um, and he's an early pioneer in the development of OpenFlow and the founder of Nicira before they were acquired by VMware. We're just talking about Nicira earlier. So you can also see Palo Alto's new Prisma Access 2.2 capabilities in action, get details on the impact that SASE technologies have made for organizations today, and learn more about forthcoming innovations. So go to sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com to register and view the event. That's sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. I will say from my own perspective, Martin Casado generally tends to be a good speaker, so he may be worth checking out. Mm. Yeah, hopefully they're doing a better job of getting, you know, people are getting better at speaking on these virtual events because I did a couple of virtual events in the last two weeks and, oh, boy, people are pretty pretty dire. <laughs> Please do better. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Agreed. All right, moving on. Cisco is rearranging the deck chairs in regards to the categories it uses to report product and service revenue. Cisco says the new categories, quote, this change will better align our product categories with our strategic priorities. So starting in its Q1 2022 fiscal report, Cisco is going to report revenues in the following categories, secure agile networks, hybrid work, end-to-end security, internet for the future, optimized application experiences, other products, and services. So if you're a traditional sort of networking person like I really am, note that switches, routers, and servers, you know, none of that infrastructure is kind of listed here. Like, do they fit into secure agile networks? Uh, or is that internet for the future? Or, you know, um, so it's very, it is a confusing thing if you want to understand, like if you're looking at Cisco's traditional products where it actually gets 80% of its revenue from, this is going to be a bit odd. Yeah. But I think the the thing here is that Cisco is saying, look, we aren't old Cisco, we're a new Cisco, yeah. we're a new Coca-Cola, and you don't seem to be hearing us, and, and we keep trying to tell you this story, and you don't seem to be taking our story on board. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to change the way we report our numbers, and maybe that'll help you understand what our new strategy is. Um, and it's I think it's notable here, Drew, is that everything here is an experience or a service, mm-hmm. not a product. So Cisco here is is definitely trying to signal to its to its owners, that is its shareholders, who is its number one stakeholder, its number one customer, um, and that is important to Cisco is that its shareholders because it's currently on track to deliver a seventeen percent return because of its uh, projected share price growth and because it's paying out cash dividends. One of the very few technology companies to pay out substantial cash dividends, and it's trying to say that people need to buy from us because of our brand because they trust us and because we have a portfolio for the future. And that is a different story to we have routers, we have switches, we have the infrastructure yes. and we're a leading technology company. They, they're they effectively giving up on being a leading technology company and saying it's about the experience, it's about partnerships with us, it's about brand experience. Yeah, I do agree. I feel like it's a statement that Cisco's saying is, yeah, we're, we're a networking company, but we're more than that. And here's all the uh, adjacent markets where we're aiming for growth. So internet for the future, mm. whatever the heck that is, uh, application experience, uh, hybrid work, uh, and so on. Um, with these category names, I'm really curious how much executive energy was spent in meetings on which adjectives to use, because it's not just networking, it's secure, agile networks. And it's not just applications, it's optimized experiences, like the whiteboarding and the, the emailing it. flying around must have been unbelievable. This sort of stuff, you know, when you get to this sort of hyperbole in just common everyday activities, you sort of think like this company's got troubles, because I saw VMware did the same thing with VMworld. When you tried to go into the sessions, it wasn't like data center networking. It was like data centric experiences or something. I, I couldn't yes. decode VMworld because I just couldn't work out what the categories meant. I, I was I, I, I caught into this absolutely. It's like this kind of gilding that uh, feels to me like a lack of confidence. Like if you have to add marketing to your product categories when you're talking to hard nosed financial analysts, it feels like kind of like anxious sloganeering. Like oh my god, please believe we're a good company. <laughs> yeah. Or I've got nothing to do, and so now I'm going to do this. Right. Like, it's, just, it's, it's like a sort yeah. of desperate uh, attempt to, to demonstrate relevance, and it, 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 comes, it rings yeah. false to me. It does, and it could be deadly serious, right, as well, at the same time. Um, but uh, who knows? Uh, at the end of the day, Cisco has been trying to say to investors, 
in the reports that I read in the analysis when they talk to uh, financial analysts and saying, look, we, we the our you know our Webex has got this and our uh, you know Duo Security is doing this and and App Dynamics is doing this. And I guess that's what they're trying to reach for is to say, we've got these adjacent businesses, but you're not seeing them. You're still focused on profit margins from hardware. And that's not what we want you to see. Right. So yeah. who knows? I think, you know, yeah, it is an attempt to wrest the attention uh, away from the old hardware business and toward the new markets they're growing into. And I understand why they want to do that. I just wish. Yeah. But it's pretty difficult to do that when like you're, Cisco takes in twelve billion revenue a quarter, and nine billion of that is router switches and servers. <laughs> right. So it's kind of it is a hard ask, you know, yes. a hard ask. Yes, and generally, I wish tech companies did a better job of just being plain, clear speaking, uh, and not trying to gild the lily. Oh, I could wish. <laughs> yes. All right, moving on. WeWork, they've finally gone public two years after its first IPO blew up in investors' faces. Uh, the shares closed up over 13% on the first day of trading. WeWork was valued at about $9 billion ahead of this public launch. It was taken public through a special acquisitions company, or SPAC, called BOX. SPACs are essentially dummy companies set up to acquire and take public an acquisition target. I included this, Drew, because WeWork is, of course, very interesting of the previous generation of internet hype. You know, the Uber, WeWork, we're going to change the world. Yes. Airbnb was going to replace all the hotels and travel would never be the same. And then it turned out that they managed to build, you know, reasonable monopolies. But WeWork was one of the ones that failed. Um, a SPAC is a company where a bunch of investors agree to put about, you know, 500 million or several billion dollars into a pot. And then they go looking for a company to buy, and the SPAC is then listed on the stock market, and the shares are then uh, using various financial engineering mechanisms. And in this case, WeWork has used a SPAC to go reverse into the market. So uh, so it avoided an IPO or a book build and just said, this is how much we're going to list our shares for. You can buy them. Um, what I note is that, remember at the peak of the WeWork, they were talking about a $90 billion valuation. Mm -hmm. And then after that blew up and people started to laugh at them just way too hard, it was scaled back to a $48 billion attempt. And SoftBank was sort of saying that's the minimum we can afford. Mm -hmm. It uh, it managed a $9 billion valuation. So Quite humbled. Now that's quite humbled. Quite humbled, yes, from the from the peak of, of hype that they went through. Uh, you could argue that the $9 billion valuation is probably over the top, given that distributed work and people and COVID and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but I think there's, at the moment, it seems like the the stock that we worked backed into did pop by up to 20% on the day, but since fell back to a 6% rise, which is almost a perfect listing. You want it to come up a little bit to sort of say, you know, people want us, but you don't want it to go up too much or you've left too much on the table. You didn't get the money in. And WeWork continues to need massive amounts of investment to get profitable and it needs to unload a bunch of businesses. So it'll be interesting to see how this works out. But I just thought I'd, if you're interested in following up what happened to WeWork, you might have missed this because it didn't get on the front page much. Yeah. Um, I, you know, a major reason the initial WeWork IPO fizzled out was because it's it's fundamentals were essentially bad. You know, they're trying to arbitrage how much they were paying to rent offices in New York City and then how much they could charge other people to come and rent from them, uh, which is a silly game. Um, but with the, I, I'm anticipating that office space pricing is going to go down over time, given mm -hmm. the distributed work movement. So maybe in the long run that works out for WeWork uh, and its fundamentals, but we'll see. Yeah, we see because they've also paid premium prices for the office space on 10 to 20 year leases. Right, that's going to come back so, and haunt them. <laughs> so, you know, there are challenges there. Yes. Anyway, I just thought I'd mention it's interesting to know that at the end of the day, 
you know, 91 to 48 to 9 billion. 9 billion seems like a reasonable valuation for a company that's still loss making, but turning over about a billion dollars a year. It's still very generous, but not the worst thing in the world. Yeah. All right. Our last story, Ars Technica reports that airline passengers were stranded after a digital vaccine passport app and website operated by Britain's National Health Service went offline for four hours. Uh, COVID restrictions require proof of vaccination to board planes, but passengers without a paper backup weren't allowed to get on flights at British airports. And the weird part about it, because I live in Britain, but I don't get on planes because I'm smarter than most people. <laughs> um, <laughs> honestly, really? Don't break your you're arm and yourself a, on a, the back. Yeah, you're going to sit in an airtight tube with a bunch of people who may or may not have COVID. Um, so in the UK, if you are a British citizen, you get your vaccination and uh, the NHS actually takes a record of that. And there's a separate app, which actually you can just click it and it just shows you your vaccination status mm -hmm. in the app. And that's what most people have been using. They did give out a piece of paper in the early times, but I I wonder how many people actually kept it, and I wonder if it was consistently handed out. Who knows? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it would be pretty bad sitting at the airport, getting there two hours early and then not able to prove your vaccination status because otherwise you have to have a test on, at the airport, mm -hmm. and there's so much demand for these tests for people getting in as well as leaving. Yep. <laughs> so... Uh, that there's actually not that much capacity in the system. So it is a pretty bad thing. Yeah, I think more people are starting to get back on planes, at least here in the US. Uh, and every airline, I think, is re relying on apps for proof of vaccinations or negative COVID tests. Uh, I just traveled recently and did have to use an app uh, to demonstrate that I was vaccinated. Um, and if that app had gone down, I, I, I did bring my vaccine card with me also. So, you mm. know, if you are traveling, carry a paper backup, but <laughs> just be prepared there. You never know <laughs> when the app isn't going to work. Yeah. The point is, even if you're carrying a piece of paper, they may delay the plane because the passengers aren't there to get on. Right. So yeah, yeah, you never know. It can be that complicated. You can't fly if half your passengers don't get on because of the vaccine. You know, what are you going to do? Take all the bags off? Thirty planes or something? <laughs> <laughs> what a nightmare! Yes. <laughs> Good luck to everyone traveling. Thirty, out there. forty, hundred planes of you know. <laughs> oh well. All right, that wraps up the news portion. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation with Pluribus and IT Renew about SDN and private cloud infrastructure. That's coming right up. Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast. And today we're talking about how to get cloud agility on premises. Our sponsor is Pluribus Networks, and they've brought along partner IT Renew. IT Renew specializes in providing high performance rack level infrastructure, and they've got an interesting approach to delivering gear for customers looking to build out private clouds. We're going to get into that approach as well as how Pluribus's SDN software fits into the picture. Our guests are Mike Capuano. He is head of technical marketing at Pluribus Networks and Eric Rydell, senior VP of engineering at IT Renew. Eric, let's start with you and IT Renew. Can you give us some more context about exactly what you're delivering in terms of infrastructure and how? Yeah, so we're delivering uh, hyperscale rack infrastructure. So we deliver racks of compute, storage, and networking based on OCP design. So OCP is the Open Compute Project. And uh, our customers are able to roll those into the data into their own data centers, or service providers are able to put them in their data centers, and it basically allows folks to create uh, on-premises private clouds for for various kinds of workloads. So the the thing here is that you're actually selling equipment by the rack, not so much the server. You know, a server here, a server there. This is rack scale delivery of of infrastructure components. That's right. Yeah. So one of the big benefits of the learnings of, of the hyperscalers from the large uh, service providers over the last five or oh, 10 years is that the, the more integration, the more kind of risk you can reduce before the hardware gets to the data center, the better off. 
And so as a result, we, we work with proven designs, but then we also pre-integrate everything into racks so that the power, the networking, the cabling, mm. um, we can even preload software when our customers um, want to do that. And so our, our kind of commitment to our customers, our goal for our customers is 60 minutes from truck to workload. So you can roll the rack off the yeah. truck. I like that, right? Because I actually am a big fan of this buy at a rack at a time. Although most enterprises are a bit like miserly old men going, here, have a server. Now you can have another server and you can have another switch port. But yeah, I'm much big fan of the rack scale type approach myself. Yeah, and it re just reduces a lot of the risk, like I said, yeah. so that you don't end up with with a bunch of cardboard and you try to plug something in and and this this plug doesn't fit into this. Yeah. And and you could have figured that all out if if someone had looked at it ahead of time. So if I, why would I get equipment from you as opposed to going to those traditional branded vendors that are out there today? Yeah, so, so our core value prop, as I just said, is delivering pre-integrated racks. But in addition, we have a bit of a unique angle on how we source the material. So mm -hmm. um, our parent company, IT Renew, so the, the rack level product line is called Sesame. And our parent company is actually in the, the business of decommissioning data center equipment. So that means that, that between 75 and 85% of the material that we put into our racks is recertified equipment um, that's, that's already been on a data center floor. So that means that we don't have some of the supply chain constraints that others have today. So I've got 50 to 65,000 servers in, in uh, inventory in our warehouses right now. And we also have a much lower cost model, right? So think of it as a, a certified pre-owned uh, type of, of material. And so our um, headline pitch to our customers is that we can save 50% hard dollar savings compared to traditional ways of, of OEM ways of buying equipment. And if you're into the conservation green and uh, enterprise sustainability goals, you'd be heading in that direction as well because you're reusing equipment, which is in perfectly fine shape. It's just done a few years. It's just the cloud scalers are got different goals around rotating their assets much more rapidly than most people. Exactly. Yeah. So the design life of a server is easily 9, 10, 12 years. And so what we're doing is we're facilitating years four through six of the usage usually, and sometimes years seven through nine. But we're well within the design life of all these materials. We refresh the, the storage devices, for example, because those are anyway removed as part of the decommissioning process. So we mm -hmm. have you know, the latest storage devices. We can put in the latest networking equipment, the latest networking software, such as our, our from our friends at, uh, at Pluribus. And the whole thing is up to 75% carbon savings compared to buying new equipment every three years. I like that. I'm curious for for customers. Is it is it the that carbon savings? Is it the uh, lower capital expense? Is it the integration? What do you find is the, the the biggest draw for you? Yeah, so it's probably the 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 latter two, right? So certainly, you know, saving fifty percent compared to to other means of buying means that customers can either purchase twice as much computing power, or they can invest the money in something else. You know, pay their their developers or or whatever. That's certainly attractive, the cost savings, but the simplicity and the practicality of, of rolling in fully integrated racks. So we've definitely had customers tell us, you know, we're happy to, to pay full price because you're taking so much of our <laughs> secondary costs off of our plate, right? All the extra work of integrating and having mm -hmm. problems and so on. And for folks who might be wondering, you know, when I'm thinking about uh, decommissioned or recertified gear, we're not talking about, you know, there was a fire in a data center and there could be damage or water damage or whatever. You're talking about just equipment that 
the hyperscalers because they want the next generation or whatever. They're just cycling through the equipment and you're taking the old stuff uh, and making it new again. Exactly. Yeah. So IT Renew, we've been doing this for almost 20 years. And for the last 10 years, we've been doing data center equipment. And so we have relationships, in some cases, exclusive relationships with most of the large hyperscalers. So Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Uber, Dropbox, etc. And we have long time, long year uh, relationships. And so we know sometimes one year, two year, three years ahead of time when they're going to decommission. And we just take care of, of all of their decommissioning. And then that forms the, the base material that we, we use to build Sesame. We'll process between 75,000 and 100,000 servers a month this year. Wow. Okay, so what's your relationship then with Pluribus? How is it that you're using Pluribus to deliver value then to people who buy these rack scale solutions? Exactly, so, so Pluribus just literally fits directly in into the white box networking, software defined networking for high scale racks. So if we put in a 10 rack cluster with, um, with 500 or maybe a thousand nodes, then the a Pluribus technology in, in software defined networking is just the perfect solution. Right. There's uh, simple to deploy, highly scalable, highly performant. The performance, the base performance comes from the, the white box hardware, which mm -hmm. is the same ASICs as in everything else. But then um, the simplicity and the, the automation that comes from the software really um, allows us to meet that that 60 minutes from truck to workload goal. So, and that's important because once you've got racks, you just have to network the racks together. You need a switch at the top of the rack, a couple of switches at the top of the rack, connectivity between them. The customers don't want to buy a rack without networking. They want to buy a turnkey solution. And we'll talk about the Pluribus architecture in just a minute because it's uniquely suited to this, but that's, that's the approach, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the approach. So that's why we, we pre-qualify with uh, with Pluribus on, on our hardware. We know that everything's going to work at high performance. And then the only thing that needs to be dealt with in the customer environment is exactly the network design and implementing the final final bits of that network design before the packets can flow. So Mike, let's bring you in uh, to talk about Pluribus's role. And it sounds like you're building an overlay network on top of the hardware provided by IT Renew. So can you give us some background on how Pluribus works? Sure. You know, first of all, our top level goal is to align with IT Renew effectively bringing the cloud operational model on-prem with on-prem performance. So we have the NetVisor 1 operating system, and that runs on white box switches that IT Renew integrates into their top of rack. Those are 2,500 gig uh, switches. And then our OS in turn powers something we call the Adaptive Cloud Fabric, which is a controllerless uh, distributed SDN software that automatically builds an underlay in the data center and an overlay, typically leaf spine, but doesn't have to be leaf spine. And that can be inside a single site across multiple racks, or it can be across multiple data centers. And uh, that in fact is where we typically see ourselves deployed is in these multi-site configurations. I wanna dig into, you've made three points there that I really wanna dig into here quickly. First of all is the heart or the, or the underlay of your solution is the, an open source, uh, uh, a white box op NOS that goes on any Broadcom ASIC based switch, which is pretty widely available from the public clouds. So IT Renew gets the switches in the gear. They retest them out, check them, validate them, put them back in. The Pluribus NetVisor goes straight on. So I'm there, right? That's the operating system, right? That is correct. So I get to use the SFPs and, and all the optics and everything that came with the servers. And it's there, the, the, the scaled cloud providers are usually running 25 or 100 gigs. So that's great. Like really state-of-the-art type stuff, way ahead of what most 
enterprises are using. But that the unique part about the Pluribus Adaptive Cloud Fabric is that it's controllerless. That is, you don't need to spin up a VM somewhere to go and talk to, like the, the work that's done to build the underlay fabric and then to build the VXLAN overlay is not done in some cloud hosted or some app running on a VM. It's actually done inside of the NetVisor OS and it's distributed amongst all of those switches in the system. Exactly right. Instead of doing a controller-based software-defined networking solution where you know you need three controllers at every data center site and a three controllers of controllers to stitch those together, we leverage the multi-core CPUs built into every switch as a distributed compute platform. So if you just write the code in a clever way, you can leverage that processing power and integrate the SDN control plane right into the switches themselves. So it's and that's one of the reasons it stretches across sites so elegantly is because you don't have to deal with the complexity of those external controllers. So the key part of the Pluribus NetVisor OS is that it's running this distributed database. So every switch that's in the defined infrastructure carries a copy of the configuration and knows its position in the configuration. And that's how it works. And that's quite unique, I think, in the industry today. I'd, I'd agree 100%. So you got that exactly right. Um, yeah. We do actually have the ability to, for those customers that are very keen on it, deploy a, the fabric using BGP EVPN. However, virtually all customers, once they experience the adaptive cloud fabric, a mm. single point of control, the ability to deploy a service fabric wide with one command, they typically select the SDN control plane as the way to deploy and manage the fabric. And this works equally as well for a data center interconnect, that is for multiple data centers it just scales horizontally out. You don't need to suddenly have some sort of weird arcane licensing mechanism to have this data center is different from that data center. It's just part of your solution. Of the deployments we see are across from our sites because that's where you know our solution shines. It could be uh, an enterprise deploying an active, active data center. We have a number of recent wins with financial institutions doing that. It could be a service provider who's got multiple cloud or colo mm. locations, or it could be an edge deployment where, where you've got lots of micro data center locations. So if I'm building out a new uh, rack with IT Renew and I'm bringing Pluribus in, but I've also already got an existing fabric, maybe a BGP VPN fabric set up, do I, are they isolated then or can I interconnect them? You can interconnect them. Yeah, that was one of the things we delivered in uh, release.1 is the ability to create the fabric with BGP EVPN, or if you use the SDN control plane inside, you can use a BGP EVPN gateway to communicate with an existing fabric. You know, we have the secret sauce inside the fabric, but external to the fabric, both at the underlay and the overlay, we use standard protocols so we can interrupt any existing structure. And it's, it's a very nice way to insert and get started at Pluribus and IT Renew in this case. So there's one angle about SDN controllers, which people often underestimate, and that's the visibility. So the SDN controller can give you visibility into the configuration, but what about the operational state? What about flow? What about taps, probes? What about you know consumption? What's, what's the bandwidth use? Is that still in there? Yeah, that's uh, another really beautiful thing about the fabric is because of the database and SDN approach, you get visibility of every flow across the fabric between any two endpoints, and you get it having to pay for all tap, tap packet brokers. The fabric actually can 
even implement a layer one uh, service to effectively a packet prototype function to distribute mirrored packets to <laughs> a, a certain set of tools. So it's 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 quite nice and it's very cost effective. And honestly, when customers deploy it and they realize what they get with the visibility, they always say like that is icing on the cake for us. But you're also saying there that you can implement the 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 pluribus adaptive cloud fabric is a packet broker in its own right. I don't need to go and buy a third party solution and put network taps in and then connect a second, you know, separate out of band network to do that. Now there are security reasons why you might choose to do it that way, but for most people just having a packet broker to capture packets in a in an audited environment is enough. You're saying you can do that with the the adaptive cloud fabric as is. You can. I would say it's not a packet broker like you're going to get from a company that's dedicated and focused right. on packet broker, but it's it's a packet broker that provides 80 uh, 20, 80% yeah. of the functionality. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. For 20%. You know, it's not going to carry you through 120% of the use cases you might want. So that is an interesting application. People should probably contact you if they want to dig into the details of that. All right. So, Eric, let's bring you in for one last question. What sort of customers are you seeing as the biggest target for IT Renews approach? Yeah, so we're, we're absolutely uh, working with service providers beyond the, the existing hyperscale, right? Bringing that, that hyperscale economics to, to them as they build out their services. We also work with a number of, of enterprises that are doing SaaS solutions and kind of recovering from the public cloud. So they're bringing applications or expanding applications <laughs> that they prototyped in the cloud. And there's there's various reasons, whether it's cost or data governance and, and so on, that they're coming back from the private cloud using on-prem solutions. Any of those guys out there. And the, finally, maybe the most exciting based on some of the things also that, that Mike was saying is for us is enterprises that are upgrading to hyperscale gear for the first time, right? And so we have, um, like we said, 100 gig, 25 gig by default. You know, customers ask us, oh, could we, you know, get 10 gig for less? And I said, look, we're, we're going to run with switches that are 25 gig and NICs are 25 gig. You know, if you want to run it at 10 gig, okay. But you know, use the new, use Why the extra bandwidth. It's going to be there, right? Yeah. And the same thing with SDN, right? You get the benefit of SDN fabric out of the box, use the pluribus solution, and then um, it works for the first rack and it's nice and simple, quick, automated to deploy. But you can also add the second and the third and the 23rd and the 25th rack and, and you're um, into hyperscale, but bing. Eric, I like the way you slipped a shiv in there on recovering from public cloud. <laughs> Definitely done. Yeah, we we really do. We we say to our customers like we have no interest in talking someone out of the public cloud. You know, if someone's you know happy with how they're using the public cloud, because so many folks come to us and say this is the reason we want on-premise solutions, and then we just proceed from there. So we have really no bet, reason to position. And I'll bet those reasons are the same over and over and over. I think, Mike, one of the interesting things about the pluribus here is this idea that you could start with a rack or two or three and then just keep adding on. And then the network just keeps scaling out horizontally. Now, what you do with the application networking over the top of this, whether it's some sort of Kubernetes and service mesh or some sort of you know, software overlay or whether you're using pluribus to do the, 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 uh, the, the networking for you, it just seems to me like a really easy way to get into this. It is very easy. And, uh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Kubernetes. Um, that's actually an area where we're doing a lot of work. And we actually have a talk, I think it's November 9th at 3 p.m. Pacific um, mm -hmm. at the OCP Summit, Open Compute mm -hmm. Project Summit, uh, where we're talking about how we're enabling Kubernetes visibility for, for customers. 
I think one other thing I wanted to add is um, we, we have actually done a lot of work enabling service provider features in, in the solution. So, you know, it's, it's multi-tenant. Uh, we can actually slice hmm. uh, the network by data plane, control plane, and management plane. You can actually have different tenants using different tools to manage oh, wow. the slice of the network. So you can actually get, have multiple, they can get access to the networking equipment and the configuration of it, even though it's a pluribus single fabric. Yes. Yes. We can slice. We can slice up fabric where someone owns, you know, ports one, two, three across ten sites, for example. And then, and then the other thing we're doing is uh, we've added a lot of uh, features like bridge domains, Q and Q, and a lot of a lot of uh, deliver service type of services. All right. Well, this does bring us to the end of the episode, Uh, Eric. If folks want to find out more about IT Renew, where would you send them? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So we have we have a link to our website. If you just go to sesame.com, Sesame is the name of our product line, and uh, you'll see the details there. Uh, and if you want to get some more information about the Pluribus products, go over to pluribusnetworks.com. And if you want to specifically uh, get more information on the IT Renew solution, you can go to a URL, Pluribus, that's P-L-U-R-I-B-U-S, networks.com slash IT Renew. There's some white papers there that dig into the details. And of course, you can find all of the social media associated with it uh, on our website. Well, that does wrap up our show. Thanks, Mike and Eric, for joining us. And thanks to Pluribus for being a sponsor. If you like this podcast, we've got many, many more. You can find them all along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. We're on Twitter at packetpushers. We're also on LinkedIn and you can rate us on Apple Podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.